having joy when you're hungry is an oxymoron. I do believe that if you took a simple survey of the men in this church, you would find that statement to be true. Because if you ask most men, do they experience joy when that Thanksgiving meal is served at 4 p.m. instead of 1 p.m.? <laughs> I already got an amen. <laughs> I do believe that you will find most men would answer, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, as our brother just agreed to, most men are most likely downright irritable when that Thanksgiving meal is served at 4 p.m. But in my experience, it doesn't seem to affect our wonderful women in that way. But us men, if you notice, right about 2.30, we start dropping by that kitchen a little bit more, right? And if you were to listen into our conversation, it then changes from talking about the football game to, man, what are they doing up in there? Or, when is the food coming out? But, when that fried turkey, mac and cheese, and collard green hits us, we're in hog heaven. But from a physical standpoint, we experience no joy in being hungry. But from a spiritual standpoint, in a spiritual sense, the Bible teaches us that there is great joy in being hungry. Because our Lord and Savior says that when those who are saved hunger and thirst for righteousness, they experience great joy. And this is the focus of the sermon that I'll be preaching today, which is entitled, The Joy of Those Who Hunger. And this sermon is based on the beatitude found in Matthew 5, 6. So please open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 6. Now here, Matthew, who wrote this gospel, he records what Jesus Christ proclaimed in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus Christ's royal proclamation as king. In it, he establishes the core truths surrounding the gospel. In it, he offers the blessings that are found in the right relationship with God. In it, he doesn't focus on the external religious rituals. He focuses on the human heart and the position that it must be in in order to please God. For as it says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And in looking at the heart, the focus on the Sermon on the Mount is to indicate the sinful condition that man is in and his desperate need for a savior. The focus on the Sermon on the Mount is to direct each and every one of us to know that 
Salvation only comes through a life submitted to Jesus Christ. And true contentment only comes through a pursuit of his righteousness, a pursuit of his precepts and his principles. That standard of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is the standard that is focused and lifted up by Christ in Matthew 5, 6. But to give you greater context, I'm going to read once again verses 3 through 12 in the book of Matthew. Now here Jesus Christ, as he sits down in the form that teachers in his day would sit down because the rabbis in general, when they stood and they spoke, most people understood that what they said they were being they were was not something that was official. But when a rabbi or a teacher sat down, he was then taking a position of authority. And so Jesus Christ sits down at the Sermon on the Mount. And he says to his disciples and the multitudes who were gathered, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, these words form what is referred to as the Beatitudes, which is a Latin term that carries the meaning, a state of happiness. And this state of happiness is characterized by the word blessed, which begins each of the beatitude, including Matthew 5, 6. Now that word blessed, when it's translated from the Greek, it simply means to be happy or to be blissful. But here within this context, when Jesus Christ uses it, it carries a much more dynamic meaning. It carries a much deeper meaning. Because here, when Jesus Christ uses it within this context, it means to be divinely joyful. It means to be divinely happy. It means to be divinely content in a way to where the circumstances that surround you does not affect you. This characteristic of blessedness is not only a characteristic that is possessed by those who have place their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This characteristic is a characteristic that is possessed by the very God that offers salvation through Jesus Christ. 
We see affirmation of this truth in Psalm 72, 18, when Solomon says, blessed be the Lord God who alone works wonders. Now there, Solomon refers to God as one who is blessed. In other words, he has indicated that God is one who is perfectly joyful, one who is perfectly happy, one who is perfectly content. And this contentment that comes from a perfect God is not experienced by a sinner until he receives the free gift of salvation and God gives him his very nature. And when he receives and shares in the very nature of God, that's when the sinner can experience the perfect joy, the perfect bliss, and the perfect contentment that comes from a perfect God. And listen, this perfect contentment cannot be found in the ways of the world. This perfect contentment cannot be found in what the world says will bring true happiness. Because the world says that true happiness is found in being successful. It says that true happiness is found in being rich. It says that true happiness is found in being powerful and popular. But the word of God stands in complete opposition to this reality. The word of God says that true happiness is found in those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It says that true happiness is only found in pursuing the things of God. True happiness is only found in pursuing his principles, his precepts, his testimonies, and his holiness. This is the truth that is being proclaimed by Jesus Christ at the beginning of this particular beatitude. And after he proclaims that true happiness can only be found in the things of God, he goes on to state in verse 6 that those who are blessed, they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that they shall be satisfied. Now here, Jesus Christ begins to explain the type of desire that is possessed by those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he indicates that the type of desire that is possessed by those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness is a desire that only comes from God. Because, as I stated before, that true contentment and true happiness only comes to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It does not come from pursuing worldly things and a worldly agenda. We see a great example of this in the life of King Solomon. Because if you recall, King Solomon was extremely wealthy. He possessed great power, great riches, 
and he was regarded as very wise. The Bible records that his wisdom was respected throughout the world. It records that he lived a life of great luxury. It points out that he had hundreds of wives as concubines. He ate the best of foods in the world. He experienced a life that was filled with tremendous pleasure. But toward the end of his life, you know where I'm going. In the book of Ecclesiastes, when death neared itself to him, he said, vanities of vanities, all is vanity. And what he was indicating there is that even though he lived a life that was filled with great luxury, great pleasure, great riches, great wisdom, and great power, at the end of it all, his life was lived in vain. His life was empty. His life was purposeless because he had sought purpose in the ways and the things of the world. When true purpose and true contentment only comes in the pursuit of God and what he has in store for those who love him. So as we come to the second part of verse six, where Jesus Christ makes it clear that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness they shall be satisfied. It's important for us to recognize that the Beatitudes are progressive in nature, meaning the first Beatitude then leads to the second, which then leads to the third, which then leads to the fourth. So here, Jesus Christ points out in the first Beatitude that True contentment, true fulfillment, and salvation does not happen until a person recognizes that they are poor in spirit. Until a person comes before God and acknowledges that they are spiritually bankrupt, that they are spiritually impoverished, that they are depraved, and they have absolutely nothing that they can offer to God which pleases him. When they come to the point of recognizing and acknowledging honestly before God that they have absolutely nothing that they can give to him that would please him. They are then in position to experience the second beatitude in which they mourn over their sins. In other words, once the person is at that point of acknowledging that they are nothing without God and can do nothing to be in his grace. They then come to the point of ex expressing deep grief over their sins. They express deep sorrow over their rebellion against God, over their wretched state, over their hatred towards him. And once they're at that point of pouring out their hearts to God, and acknowledging that they are sinners and they are filled with great sorrow for how they have acted towards the one who has given them life. They are then in position to be gentle 
they are then in position to be meek. They are then willing to give up the power that they have over their own lives. They are then willing to give up being the captain of their own ship and give up that power and that control completely unto God. And once they're at that point of giving up themselves and their control completely unto God, they are then in position to do exactly what the Beatitude said in verse 6. They are then in position to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that's where Jesus Christ wants each and every believer. That's where he wants each and every one who has accepted him as their Lord and Savior. That's where he wants each and every one of us who have placed our trust in Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. He wants each and every one of us to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. Now, the question remains, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God? It means that once you are saved, once you have humbled yourself before God and given up complete control of your life onto the one who is the creator and sustainer of the universe, once you have poured out your heart and expressed your deep sorrow over the sinful way that you have lived for the entirety of your lives up until that point, once you have come to the point of being gentle and accepting that God is the one who is sovereign and in control of your life, when you come to that point, you are then to pursue the righteousness of God like your life depends on it. You are to pursue it with every breath and every step that you take for the entirety of your life. You are to pursue his principles, his precepts, his testimonies, his rules, his laws, and everything that is contained within the 66 books of the Holy Canon. We are to pursue God's righteousness in light of what is stated in Ephesians 1.4, where Paul says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. In other words, God chose us and created us before he created the entire world. Before he placed the sun, the moon, and the stars in their perfect position. Before he created the entire universe. He decided to elect us unto salvation and to create us. Even though he knew that once he created us, that we would reject him. That we would rebel against him. That we would hate him to the point to where we stood in opposition to his every law. Even though God knew that before he created us, he would have to set forth a redemption plan in order to reconcile us back to him. And that redemption plan would include him sacrificing his one and only son, Jesus Christ, 
for the salvation of his precious elect. Even though he knew that he would have to send Jesus Christ, his beloved son, out of the opulence, out of the glory and the worship of heaven, onto this fallen and wretched earth where Jesus Christ would be rejected, where he would be humiliated, where he would be spat upon, where he would be tortured and ultimately have to die upon that wooden cross on Calvary, where he would die the worst death, the most humiliating death that a person could die at that point in time in Jewish history. He would die the death of a criminal. And God knew that once he was up on that cross, he would have to place the sins of the entire world upon him. And because God is holy, because God is righteous and perfect, and he can have nothing to do with sin, he knew that for the first time in all of eternity, he would have to be separated from his beloved son, Jesus Christ. He knew that the intimate fellowship that they shared for all of eternity would have to be broken. Even though God knew this, he still created us. He still formed us in his glorious image. He still shaped us to reflect his wonderful glory. What a great and magnificent God we serve. This is a God who created us, who redeemed us, and brought us into his kingdom. And once we are a part of his kingdom, we are to do exactly what it says in Matthew 6.33. We are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, that everything else may be given unto us. This should be the primary motivation in our lives. This should be the preeminent focus of our hearts. This should be the predominant disposition of our mind, soul, and body. Our focus should be on glorifying God, on pursuing his righteousness, and pursuing Christ's likeness, and being conformed into his beautiful image. We are to devote ourselves to the sanctification process and dedicate ourselves to becoming holier and holier and holier until we take our very last breath. We should be like the Apostle Paul. Amen is right, brother. We should be like the Apostle Paul, who even though he performed magnificent miracles, even though he carried out great ministries that helped lay the foundation of the church and please God tremendously and is recorded throughout the New Testament, even though he received magnificent revelations from the one most high, even though he received great visions from God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. The Apostle Paul still said in Philippians 3.10 that his desire was to know him and to 
know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. God wants us to be like the Apostle Paul, that even though we have walked with God for one, for 10, for 20 or 30 years, even though we have spent many years with him, we should still desire like the Apostle Paul to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. We should be like David who said in Psalm 63:1, Oh God, I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body faints for you. How many of us can honestly say that our soul thirsts for the righteousness of God to the point to where our bodies faints for him? Listen, this is where Jesus Christ wants each and every one of us. He wants us to pursue him, to pursue his righteousness to the point to where our soul thirsts for him and our body faints for him. And I'm here to let you know that if you're not at that point in your spiritual life, it's not too late. You can start today. You can start today to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God to the point to where your soul thirsts for him, to where it thirsts for his holiness, to where it thirsts for his precepts, to the point to where your body faints for him, to where you exhaust yourself and expend yourself in pursuit of building up his kingdom. You can start today by dedicating yourself to God in the way to where you practice those one another's, to where you love one another, you encourage one another, you strengthen one another, you build up one another. You can start today by exercising those spiritual gifts that God has given you to practice within the church that you may build up the body of believers which he has instructed each and every one of his saints to do. You can start today to hunger and thirst for righteousness like the Apostle Paul, like David, and like the prodigal son who when he found himself distant from God, distant from his father, stuck in the muck and mire with those pigs. And he was at the point of starvation. Instead of being angry at God and running further away from him, he instead returned to his father. He instead returned so that he could experience a right relationship with his father. He returned so he can experience the blessed fellowship that he once knew with his father. He returned so that he can experience the blessed provisions that God has in store for him. And I'm here to tell you that God has wonderful and manifold blessings within his kingdom in store for each and every one of us. Each and every one of us who are willing to devote ourselves to him and pursue his righteousness and hunger for it and thirst for it. He has promised to bless you, to honor you, to strengthen you so that you may be able to stand and glorify him. Now, that's what it means to hunger 
and thirst for the righteousness of God. But with this beatitude, Jesus Christ also wants us to know that he created every human being with a need for righteousness. He created every human being with a desire for the righteousness of God. And he makes this point by using the analogy of a physical body and how it desires sustenance. Because when the human body is in need, it hungers and thirsts for food in order to sustain it. When the human body is in need, it hungers and thirsts for food in order to give it vigor. When the human body is in need, it hungers and thirsts for food in order to give it life. And in the same way that the human body desires sustenance, God has created every human heart to also desire sustenance. He has created every human heart to desire perfect joy, perfect fulfillment, and perfect contentment. But that perfect fulfillment can only be found in a right relationship with God because lost man does not know how to satisfy that desire. And therefore, instead of seeking God, lost man seeks to fulfill his desires through his pursuit of the things of the world. And this does not provide him with any satisfaction, any true and lasting satisfaction. And this is why God says through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55 too, why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? And why do you spend your wages on that which will not satisfy? The lost man remains unsatisfied. And it's not until God reveals to lost man that True contentment and true happiness only comes through a life that's lived in submission to him. It is only at that point that man then experiences perfect joy, perfect happiness, and true contentment. It is only at that point that God brings relief to the soul of man and he experiences true peace within his heart. This is why it says in Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's only once God justifies us. It's only once he declares us not guilty of our past, present, and future sins. It's not until we place our faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God as the one who died for our sins and was raised from the dead. It's not until that point that we then receive the free gift of salvation and we partake of the very nature of God and experience the perfect, joyful, blissful, and wonderful contentment that comes from the God who sits on high. 
It is only then that we no longer are an enemy of God. It is only then that we stop waging war against our righteous Father in heaven. It is only then that we stop raging against his perfect righteousness. It is only then that we stop raging against his ocean of holiness. It is only then that we stop raging against the spring waters of eternal life. It is only then that we are made to be at peace with God. However, even though once we are saved and we are at peace with God, it does not stop us from continuing to pursue the righteousness of God. Because God has set forth his plan that once we are saved, we're to continue to pursue his righteousness for the entirety of our lives until we stand before God in heaven, fully perfected, fully glorified, and the face of Jesus Christ shines upon each and every one of us. Until then, as long as we are here on earth, we're to pursue the righteousness of God. We're to hunger and thirst for his righteous glory. This is what Jesus Christ proclaims in regards to those who are blessed. He proclaims that they must hunger and thirst for righteousness. And after he proclaims this truth, he then goes on to say in the final part of verse 6, he says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. Now here, Jesus Christ makes it clear that the satisfaction that is received by those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's a complete satisfaction. It's not a partial satisfaction or a partial fulfillment. It's a complete satisfaction that's given by God. Because when a person comes to accept Christ and God welcomes him as his beloved children, they enter into a state to where they are fully pleased, to where they are completely satisfied. And this satisfaction only comes from God. But it is the duty of the believer to pursue the righteousness of God. And it is a duty and the promise of God that he will satisfy that hunger and that thirst for righteousness. However, I must admit that there is a paradox operating here. Because when you think about it, if once a believer humbles himself before God and he is saved by God, and he finds himself completely satisfied in him, then the question remains, why must he continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness? That is the paradox. But I'll answer that paradox with a simple illustration. Let's take uh, when, when you eat your favorite food. Let's take burgers, for instance, you know. I know some people, they like In-N-Out, right? 
Some people prefer fat burger. Um, some like Tommy's. Listen, I like all three of them. But when it comes to my favorite burger, it's actually from a very uncommon place. It comes from a restaurant called Duke's in Malibu. And me and my wife will testify that when we go to Duke's, even though it's primarily a seafood restaurant, we get the burger each and every time. Because I kid you not, that meat literally melts in your mouth. And then the other items on the burger, they're so well balanced that it all goes down smoothly. And each and every time I have that burger, I am completely satisfied. But it doesn't prevent me from wanting more of that burger in the future. And in the same way, when a believer hungers and thirsts for the righteousness of God, and he is completely satisfied at the point of salvation or any point in time during their walk with God, it does not prevent them from hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God more and more. In fact, the believer is propelled to desire the righteousness of God even more because once God gives you that satisfaction, you desire more and more of it because the satisfaction that comes from God is perfect. It is wonderful. It is blessed. It comes from the one who loves us. And this is why God says concerning the satisfaction that he provides. He says in Psalm 107.9, he will satisfy the soul that is thirsty and the hungry soul he provides with what is good. This is what King David said concerning the satisfaction that comes from God and how God distributes it to those who are poor in spirit and those who mourn and those who are gentle and come to the point of falling before him and humbling themselves in submission to him. But I do have a warning for all of us also. We've heard so many wonderful things about God and what he does for us who were once sinners and who are now in a right relationship with him. But the warning is this, is that if you profess to be a believer in Jesus Christ, yet you find that you are not hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God, something is clearly wrong. It may be at that point in time that you need to apply 2 Corinthians 13, 5, which says to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you find yourself hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God, if you find that you are in the household of faith and you hunger and thirst for all the wonder, the beauty and magnificence of God, Jesus Christ has promised that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he has promised that each and every one of you 
will be satisfied. He has promised that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he has promised that they will be blessed. He has promised that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, that they will be blissful. He has promised that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be joyful. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be jubilant. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be happy. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be hopeful. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be gratified. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be pacified. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. For Jesus Christ has proclaimed it. He has promised it. And he is faithful to his promises. Amen? Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you that when we were dead in our trespasses, you made us alive together with Christ. And now that we are humbled before you, those of us who have placed our faith and trust in your beloved son, Jesus Christ, we ask, dear God, that you bless us and help us to hunger and thirst for your righteousness each and every day of our lives in the same way that we bring our lives to a stop when we are hungry at lunch or hungry at dinner time. May we bring our lives to a pause to reflect upon you in our devotions. May we bring our lives to a pause to share the gospel with those who are lost, whether among our family members or whether within the community. May we bring our lives to a pause each and every Sunday that we may come to church and do exactly what you have commanded us to do, to worship you with other believers. May we live our lives in pursuit of you and your glorious righteousness. And may that pursuit never ends until we breathe our last breath and we stand before you in your loving arms, experiencing all of eternity and all the joy, all the blessings and the rich inheritance that awaits us as heirs of Christ, co-heirs along with him. We thank you for how you have dealt with us. We thank you for you know our frame. And we ask that you please help us to honor you with the entirety of our lives. In Jesus' overcoming and righteous name we pray. Amen.